everybody and welcome to the well here at STSA where we like to say about ourselves we are an ordinary place where extraordinary stuff happens and today it has never been more true because today we are wrapping up a fantastic series that if you've been with us for the past four weeks you can attest to yourself because what we've been doing for the past four weeks is this series called identity crisis the search for me discovering who I am and what we've been doing for the past few weeks is trying to figure out not who our parents told us that we are not who my spouse tells me that I am, not who my boss, my kids, my parents, not who people tell me that I am, not who I think I am, but who does God say that I really am? And what we discovered throughout this series is a lot of us are walking around with an identity crisis because we are not who we think we are. And over the past four weeks, what we've seen is that first we saw that we are a new creation in Christ. And, and when we entered those waters of baptism, that we are no more who we once were, but through that, we are now children of God, adopted into God's family, and we are the richest of all rich people because our Father is the richest, and nothing you can do can ever make you not a child of God. Nothing you can do. My child has my last name forever. Even if he's astray, even if he's lost, even if like the prodigal son, he goes very far away, he's always my son, regardless of what he does. His actions cannot override his identity. That's who we are. Then we saw that by the power of the Holy Spirit, by receiving the Spirit of God, that we are ordained and consecrated to be saints in this world. And not just to be saints and live as lives as holy, but also have a mission, okay, which is to be the royal priesthood. And we saw what that meant. Last week we saw that through the body and blood of Christ, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that Christ has given us himself to put on. And we talked about how a policeman may not have power to stop a car, but when he's wearing his uniform, he certainly has the authority to do so. And we, when we put on Christ, we have an authority that even though we are weak, we have a powerful authority that's given to us through Christ himself. And today is going to be the best of all the messages. The best of them all. The best, the best, the best, the best, the best of them all. Because we've been, the way I try to think about this series, all right, for those who have been kind of going with us along right here and, and opened our eyes to seeing all kinds of stuff, it's exactly like we were living as, as beggars. Okay, imagine someone living as a beggar, living as a homeless person, and all of a sudden discover he has a rich uncle who's very generous and wants to give away all his money. And his beggar, I've been a beggar for 90 years of my life, and all of a sudden on my deathbed, I, dis I discover I got a rich, rich, rich uncle who's very generous and wants to share. That's been this series for us. 
A lot of us living as poor, living as orphans, living as if there is no God in heaven. If he is one, he doesn't care about it. He's not involved in our lives. Living as if we have no mission, living as we have no power, living with nothing, and then all of a sudden discover that we got something special. Well, today that's the most true of all. Because today our message is that I am a masterpiece. I am a masterpiece. What is the criteria to be a masterpiece? I say masterpiece, and this is just the first thing that came to my mind, okay? That's the first thing that came to my mind. You can't, you can't fault a guy for being honest. A masterpiece, as you see up on the screen, okay, as Marianne tries to hide under her chair right now. <laughs> a masterpiece, as you see up on the screen, how would you define, okay, there's lots of works of art, lots of works of art, but this one is a masterpiece. There's lots of statues in the world, but this one is a masterpiece. Even in the sports realm, if you're like, I'm not an artsy kind of guy, but I'm a sports guy. And people play sports all the time. But this performance, this pitching performance, that was a masterpiece. What is the definition, the criteria for something to be a masterpiece versus just an ordinary piece of art or an ordinary performance or an ordinary whatever? What makes Beethoven different than, with all due respect to our music, I would choose our music team over Beethoven any day of the week. But most people would say, Beethoven, masterpiece. Okay, Joe Schmo in the street, or the guy working the club, or whatever it is, ordinary. Most people would say, Michelangelo, whatever. And then they say, you know, uh, my kid in, in third grade art class with the fingerprint, whatever. What is the criteria for something to be a masterpiece versus just an ordinary piece of art, or ordinary whatever? I came up with a few definitions that you're probably thinking of, but I'm going to tell you why I don't like those definitions. I came up with, it's beautiful. It is breathtaking. Something that, I don't even know what this means, but this is what they would say. Captures the imaginations and the hearts. I don't know what that means. I don't know what any of those things mean because those are all fluffy. I need something, I need something concrete. What identifies, like give me something tangible that I can say, if it doesn't meet this criteria, it cannot be a masterpiece. I came up with one criteria. One thing. That if it is not this one thing, then it cannot be a masterpiece. And if it is this one thing, it most likely is a masterpiece. And that word, anyone guess? Unique. Would you agree with me that for something to be a masterpiece, it must be unique? I said this pitching performance was a master, masterful performance, masterpiece. If the guy does it every time he plays, it's not a masterpiece. If you got uh, 30 or 40 Mona Lisa's strung around, it's not a masterpiece. If I go to your basement, I see the Sistine Chapel in your basement, it's no longer a masterpiece. For something to be a masterpiece, it needs to be one in a million. Broke the mold. An original. Not a copy and paste. Nothing like it in the entire universe. St. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, this is our key verse for today. We are his workmanship. Workmanship, I, another way you can say workmanship is we are his masterpiece. You know what workmanship means? If you go to a, uh, a carpenter shop, a woodworking thing, uh, here I am, I'm a woodworker, and you say, come show me your workmanship. Okay, I walk in, or you're, you're, the, you're the, the customer, I'm the, the guy. I say, I want to see your workmanship. What am I going to show you? Am I going to show you, like, I got a, 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 a dozen of these little, uh, the spoon things for the salad, the, the things. Is that what I'm going to show you? Am I going to show you that I got, you know, these little uh, wooden crosses, and I got 
50 of them strewn over here. Is that what I'm going to show you? What am I going to show you? I'm going to show you the best. The thing that I only got one of. The thing that is my masterpiece. You want to see, hey, you're whatever. Let me see your workmanship. I say, okay, forget about the stuff in the front. Come, let me show you the stuff in the back. The stuff that there's only one of. The stuff that there's no copy and pasting. The stuff that, that no one can duplicate. This is my workmanship. This is my masterpiece. The Bible says that if you ask God, hey, God, you created a lot of stuff in this universe. You created rocks. You created trees. You created stars. You created sun. You created mountains. You created Grand Canyons. You created all kinds of cool stuff. Show me the, the masterpiece. Like, take me, show me the good stuff. Like, I don't want to see the regular stuff. I've seen that stuff. Show me the good stuff. He say, ah, I got something good for you. Come here, come here, come here. You know what he's going to show you? Me. And you, and everyone. He's going to show you me. He's going to, oh, let me say this better. He's going to show me me. He's going to show you you. He's going to take you to the back room. And when you get to that back room, you know what you're going to find? A bunch of mirrors. They say, let me show you my workmanship. Go look in those mirrors. Because you are the crown of all of God's creation. You know this word workmanship? The Greek word, workmanship. Let me tell you what the Greek word means. You try to figure out what, what is meant by the word. The Greek word is pronounced poema. Poema. Say that with me. Say poema. Poema. What does poema sound like? Poem. We are God's poem. How do you write a poem? Copy and paste? You write a poem. You sit down. You take your time. You get your cup of coffee. You do your stuff. And you write that thing. You can't type a poem. You write a poem. Right? You write a poem. That's how God, when God created me and you, God was writing a poem when he created you. See, we have this mindset. This is the opposite of our mindset. Because we're efficient, and we're factory, and we're assembly line. And we think that God kind of put us together like kind of like Mr. Potato Head. Yeah, give me a nose, give me an ear, just put it, slap it all together and kind of copy and paste. Or like there's a factory line here of all like the heads, okay? And just attach, oh, pick this head, put it on this body, this head on this body. God didn't put us together like Mr. Potato Head. God didn't put us together like a, a factory assembly line. God sat down and told all of nature, be quiet, I got to concentrate, because I am going to create a masterpiece. The masters at work right now do not disturb. And the result of it was me and you. That includes our appearance, physical. That includes our emotional makeup. Includes our temperament, includes our personality, includes our skills, includes our abilities. Includes everything about us. Our circumstances, like God put everything, 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 everything to make a masterpiece, which is you. You don't believe me? I said the criteria for a masterpiece is unique. Go find someone in this world who's like you. Go find someone in this world who has your fingerprint. You won't find none. Go find someone who has your footprint. You won't find none. Go find someone who has your exact set of skills and personality, and forgive the word, your quirks. Go find someone who's like you. You never find. There are 7 billion people in this world, and there are not two people that are the same. And not just are not two people the same. There have not been two people the same through all of history. All of history. Thousands of years. Billions of people. And there have never been two that is exactly the same. What does that say when God created you? You're a masterpiece. Me, I'm Mr. Efficiency. Okay, I like efficiency. Efficiency is the most important thing. That's the way I make So I'm thinking about this, and I'm hurting my head. I'm like, God, with all due respect, that's a very inefficient way to create the world. Like, I'm all about batch processing. 
Okay, I like things in batch. So when I need to make a phone call, I never just make one phone call. I group all the phone calls together, boom, 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 go through all the phone calls. Same with my emails, respond all at the same time. If I wanna do meetings, I'm gonna do all my meetings at the same time, batch, boom, it's much more efficient. God is very inefficient. Okay, God, hypothetically, why everyone has to be unique? Like, let's say there's another copy of me over in, in China somewhere. Who's gonna know? Like, who cares? Like, you have seven billion people. Just make two of each. Forget about it. Let's say a boy in China in 1905, and he's the same as me. Who cares? Who's going to even know? God knows. Because you're a masterpiece. You're a unique creation. Some verses right here, just, uh, just so you see how God created us. The key word here we're going to see is hands. Your hands, Job 10. Your hands have made me and fashioned me in intricate unity. Your hands, your hands, hands which hung the stars in the sky have made me. Next one here from Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. And we all, all we are the work of your hand. We are handmade. We are not copy and pasted. We are not factory line, assembly line. We are handcrafted and handmade, made from scratch favorite verse of all, Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14. For you, God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You did what? You knit me. Y'all know what knit me means? It means God sat down and said, okay, this boy needs a personality. He started working. He's a personality. And let's make him Okay, a little funny guy, because he's going to be up on stage. People need to laugh a little. Make him a little funny. Not too funny, because he thinks he's too funny already. Okay, don't make him. He started to knit me. And let's make him an it, it, and all these different things. Why? I'm a masterpiece. I was made by hand. I was made from scratch. You come out of a box. That includes, as I'm saying that, as I'm saying God knit me by hand, not out of a box, that includes my positive traits and my negative traits. That includes my flaws. Okay, and I say flaws in quotes because it's only flaws in your eyes. Because in God's eyes, it's not necessarily a flaw. In God's eyes, it's how you were made to be a masterpiece, a unique masterpiece. And can we accept that some of the things that are in our life today that we see as mistakes or things that we wish we could get rid of or things that are flaws, God says, it's not a flaw. That's masterpiece. That's what makes you unique. See, you look around and you want copy and paste. I want unique. I made you an original. You want carbon copy. Like, I liken it to making a cake. If you make a cake, in theory, I never made a cake, but in theory, when you make a cake, you put a whole bunch of ingredients in there. And on their own, those ingredients may not be the most tasty. Okay, you got put flour, and you put chocolate, and you put like extract something or other. Okay, and then you put like uh, uh, eggs, stuff like that. Well, what would happen if you say, okay, I, I like chocolate cake, but I don't have time to make it. So, you know, crack an egg and throw that in there and mix some vanilla extract and some chocolate chips and swish it around. By themselves, the ingredients don't taste very good. But when they come together and they formulate, they make a masterpiece, which is a chocolate cake. Will you? 
have some ingredients inside you that you look in the mirror and say, I hate these ingredients. These taste bad. I wish I could get rid of these. But then you wouldn't be a masterpiece. Then you wouldn't be a chocolate cake. Then you'd just be a thing. Can you trust? Can you trust that the same God who hung the stars in the sky, the same God who opened the eyes of the blind, the same God who took from his hands clay and formed the universe, took you in his hands and formed you, flaws and all. The problem is in life, it's hard. This perspective that I'm giving you right now is sometimes hard from this side. Okay, it's hard when you're in the storm to kind of see, like when you're in the middle of the mess and you're in the middle of the baking and there's ingredients all over the place and the counter's got chocolate and there's flour and stuff is messed up. It's hard to see it before the cake has come out of the oven. But this is where trust needs to come in. Let me show you a story right here. And I'm not going to get too far into this story, but just to kind of show you what, what, I'm, what I'm talking about, illustrate it. John chapter 9 is a story of a man called the, born, the man who was born blind. This man was born, they say, not like with a vision impairment, but born without eyes. Okay, he had a condition where he came out of the womb through no fault of his own, through no fault of his parents, as we'll see in a little bit. No eyes. His eyes, nothing there. And look, look what the scripture says about him. John chapter 9. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They walk by this guy and the disciples, the disciples of Christ, the guys who are the heads of the church today that we look at, walk by this guy and said, this poor pathetic soul, born without eyes, must have been he did something wrong or his parents did something wrong. And they're having a theological discussion on the effects of sin and this person right in front of the guy. And this was common, ordinary. This is what they believed. If there's something wrong in me, it must be my fault. It must be my parents' fault. It's got to be somebody's fault. Whose fault was it that this guy was born blind? Whose fault was it? If you're this guy, how do you feel? Every person that passes by you says, who is this pathetic guy? He must be a bad guy. He must have. I think of all the people in the Bible that we see, if there's anyone who had low self-esteem must have been this guy. Like this guy, if anyone who wanted to kill himself and had a right to kill himself, it was this guy. Even though I'm not saying it like that, but you know what I'm saying. This guy had no reason to live. Nobody cared about this guy. Everyone walked by, just spit on the guy. He had no future to look forward to. Even his own parents. Even his own parents didn't care about him. Even his own parents left. The disciples said, why was he made this way? Must be his fault. What did he do? Well, if you're this guy, what are you saying to yourself? He said, God, what did I do? Well, Jesus answered that question in the next verse. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, I don't want to get into a, like, theological discussion here, and I'm not trying to say, like, God wants us to be blind or God wants us to be sick so he could do cool miracles. I'm, it's not what I'm saying at all. But I just want to take this from a spiritual perspective, and I want to ask you a question. Today, I'm just going to ask you questions. You have to answer these questions. First question I'm going to ask you is this. Can you accept that even your weakness is part of God's masterpiece? Because that's essentially what Jesus said. Jesus said this person did not sin. His parents did not sin. His weakness is part of my plan. His weakness is part of my plan. And can you accept, can you look in the mirror and see your weakness, your flaws, the things that you hate about yourself that you wish you could change and say, you know what? Even despite all these things, I'm still a masterpiece and this flaw is part of God's plan for my life. As I'm preparing this point right here and I'm asking this question, what I was tempted to do 
which you would probably hear in most sermons that are going in this direction. What I was tempted to do is give you now an example and tell you a story of somebody who was, you know, paralyzed in a tragic car accident and then, you know, they are lived their life paralyzed and then they hated themselves and then they discovered like a great purpose for it. And they, you know, founded an organization, helped others. Or someone who was sick, and then they helped many others, you know, cope with their sickness. Or someone who lost a loved one and then started, like the lady who's, who started like the Mothers Against Drunk Driving because her son was killed by a drunk driver and she started. I was tempted to tell you a story like that. And to say, you know what? Your weakness can be something great. But you know what? I'm not going to tell you any of the stories. You know why? Because I want to say the true testing of this is when you don't discover the answer to that question. I can tell you about someone who did discover their weakness and how it was part of God's plan. But I can tell you many more stories of people who will never discover why their weakness is part of God's plan. And they'll live their whole life and say, I don't know why I have this, but I trust God that God gave this to me and God designed me and I'm still a masterpiece even though I don't have the faintest idea. Easy for me to tell you a story of someone, but that's not reality. Reality is, what if you never figure out why you have that flaw? Can you still trust You may be single today because of something completely outside of your control. And you have no idea why that is. Why God? Blame God. Not fair God. Can you accept that even your weakness is part of God's masterpiece? You may struggle to keep a job, a steady job, because of an illness that you have. You were born with the illness. You did nothing to deserve it. You were born with this illness. Can you trust that your weakness is part of God's masterpiece? Maybe you struggle in relationships because of a bad person when you were young who was supposed to protect you and supposed to be there to provide for you hurt you and hurt you bad. And because of that, you struggle in relationships and you will always struggle in relationships. Can you trust that even your weakness is part of God's masterpiece? Some of you, this is the hardest thing. This is the hardest thing. The hardest thing is to accept the flaws in myself and to see those flaws that God can use them for good and to see that I can still be a masterpiece even despite my weaknesses and my flaws. Well, I'm asking you, are you going to trust, kind of what we were talking about this entire series, are you going to trust what your eyes see or what God says? You trust your sight or you trust your faith? We know in our, in our faith, I said this earlier today for those here during the liturgy, that we do not walk by sight, we walk by faith. And sometimes we say we don't, uh, believe because we don't see. What I said earlier today, actually the truth is we don't see because we don't believe. You think you don't see because you, you think you don't believe because you don't see. I say you don't see because you don't believe. And you will never see until you believe. And until you believe that God can bring good from your weakness, you will never see the good from that weakness. Until you believe that you are still a masterpiece, you will never see that you are actually a masterpiece in God's eyes. So here's my, my, my like practical Okay, like what to do if you struggle with this. Here's what you do. Stop comparing. This is the takeaway. Stop comparing. Stop comparing. Stop comparing. Stop. We as human beings were made to look up at God. And what we have done is because we are, 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 are fallen creatures, we stopped looking up and we started looking across. And we started looking out. And this is, this is all the problem in the world. After Adam and Eve sinned, what was the first sin that entered into the world? First sin that the Bible records. When Cain offered a sacrifice to God, and he should have just offered a sacrifice to God and offer your best and give it to God. And God didn't yell at him and God, like, offer your best. And God was saying, maybe that's not your best. Okay, give your best. But what did Cain do? He didn't look up at God. He looked at what Abel offered. 
And he didn't see, he saw that what Abel offered was different than what he offered. And because he stopped looking up, because he started looking out, that's all the problems in the world. We need to look up, not look around. Because when you look around, when you compare, you short-circuit God's plan for your life. Because you are a masterpiece. I just told you, you are unique. No one else's circumstances apply to you. No one else has your gifts. No one else has your temperament. No one else has anything that you have. So you, by comparing, apples cannot compare themselves to oranges because they were raised completely differently. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Look what St. Paul says about comparing. He says, we dare not, we dare not, with emphasis, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, them, but they, measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Grammatically tough sentence to follow, but don't compare is what it's basically saying, okay? Don't compare because it is not wise. You know why it's not wise? Because it is always going to be easier for you to see the good that you lack than the good that you have. This is human nature. It is always easier to see the good that you lack than the good that you have. It's always easier to look at your kids and say, I wish my kids were like your kids. It's always easier to see, if I had your job, I'd be in a better situation. It's always easier to see, well, if I was married to this person instead of this person, then life would be great. You know why you see the other person's spouse is better than your spouse? Because you ain't there before that lady's had coffee here in the morning. And you ain't there when she come home from work. You just see the best of that person. You just see the best of those kids when they've been given money to behave in your house. It is always easier to see the good that you don't have. Wise person once said, you know the grass is greener on the other side? You know why the grass is greener on the other side? Because when you're on this side of the fence, you can't smell the poop in your neighbor's yard. That's why it is. And that's the truth of the matter, is you can't smell the poop in my life. You can't see the bad things in my situation. You just see the good in my situation. You say, I wish I had it as good as he has it. But when you come on this side of the fence, you say, maybe I don't. Everything looks better from a distance. Everything looks better from a distance. What we need to say like St. Paul said, one of the best verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And we're not taking this as an excuse for laziness or to just uh, not, not improve our lives, but we are saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am the way I am created. Not randomly, not oops, not a mistake, but because God carefully knit me together. And every piece of thread that God put in my life was intentional. If you have a problem with how God made you, if I insult your car, I'm not insulting the car, who am I insulting? The maker of the car. Like if I say this car stinks, then I'm saying the person who made this car stinks. If you insult yourself, you're not insulting yourself. You're insulting your maker, and you have a problem with God. That's why envy, I will say, I'm jealous of this person. No, you're not, it has nothing to do with this person. It's between you and God. What opens the door to envy is when I look around and I stop looking up. Nice quote here from a guy named George McDonald. He said, I would rather be what God chose to make me than the most glorious creature that I could think of. For to have been thought of, listen to this one, you don't think you're a masterpiece. To have been thought about, born in God's thought, and then made by God is the dearest, grandest, and most precious thing in all thinking. Ah, I like that. For God to have thought about me and knit me, every piece of me. Oh, it makes me feel good. I'm a masterpiece. With that said, with that said, I can read y'all's minds. I know where y'all going with this one. First, I have to be convinced 
I'm created a masterpiece. And some of you say, you know what? Okay, Father Anthony, I'm with you. God created me a masterpiece. But I ruined it. I ruined it. I ruined it by my mistakes, by my decisions, by the stupid things that I've done. I agree, God made me a masterpiece. And I blew it. So now I even feel worse about myself. Okay? Has anyone ever heard of, I'm not going to pronounce this properly, so forgive me. Okay, I think it's an Italian name. Tullio Lombardo. Anybody? Lomb You've heard of him? Okay. You're just trying to correct my pronunciation. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Tullio Lombardo made a famous statue, and it's called Adam. You ever heard of this Adam statue? Okay. That's with my edit. Okay. Because it's not appropriate for church. Okay. This is a famous sculpture from the 15th century. And not, instead of pretending to know what it's about, let me just read to you what it said on Wikipedia. This was a very famous statue because it was the first life-size nude marble statue since antiquity and the most important Italian Renaissance sculpture in North America. Don't worry about the background of where it came from. This is an important sculpture. A very famous thing. This guy, it sounds like Lombardi. It's Lombardo, apparently. Made this thing, and it was from the Italian Renaissance. A very famous thing. In the year 2002, in a museum in New York, it was knocked over. They didn't say how it was knocked over, which means most likely the museum themselves, somebody knocked it over, something like that. Broke into a million different pieces. What do you do when a masterpiece like this is broken into a million different pieces? That's, I, I made up, not a million, let's not say a million, let's say, you know, like a hundred pieces or something like that. What do you do when a masterpiece is broken into a hundred pieces? Huh? You fix it. You don't say, oh well. When something like this gets broken, you fix it. Took them 12 years, 12 years, and hundreds of thousands of dollars and a team of hundreds of people, and finally this, this, this sculpture was restored and it's in the Metropolitan Museum of Art somewhere in New York. Here's my question to you. Why would you spend 12 years to fix a statue? And why would you spend hundreds of thousands of dollars? And why would you take up the time of all these people to fix this dumb statue? Why? Because it is a masterpiece, even though it's not rated appropriate okay, for church. Okay? Because it's a masterpiece. Second question. Second question. Is a masterpiece, is a masterpiece ever truly ruined? said another way. Is it ever not a masterpiece anymore? That statue is a masterpiece. Then it was broken. It was a hundred different pieces. Is it a masterpiece or not a masterpiece? It's a masterpiece. You go up to the Mona Lisa and you wipe a booger on the Mona Lisa. That's still a masterpiece. There's a difference between an ugly painting and a masterpiece painting that has some dirt on it. Would you agree? <clears throat> if workers can spend 12 years to fix a stupid statue, forgive me, to fix a stupid statue, can God fix us? Have we been broken? Have we got a booger on us? If we've fallen, we got some smudge of dirt, can God restore us? Or only the statue? A lot of us, I said you're a masterpiece, you're a masterpiece, you're a masterpiece, you say I don't feel like a masterpiece. 
Father Anthony, I messed up. I messed up bad. I promised God I wouldn't, and I did. I have messed up more. I have failed God time and time and time again. I ruined my family. I ruined my future. I am a mess up. Just last night, actually. Just last night. We were going uh, before Vespers. Okay, I was, I was going out to put something in my car, and just some random guy said, are you a priest something? And I said, yeah. He said, your church? And I'm like, no, we rent. And I explained to him the renting in the Orthodox. He said, you have a few minutes? I said, come on in, buddy. And not a homeless guy, just a normal guy. Security guy, like he worked security at the Hilton. And he would just go walk in his car. Sat with me for 10 minutes and he confessed. And I'm like, I don't even, we sat and he, he basically told me this. He said, I'm ruined my life. I've ruined my life. And I told him this. I said, you're lucky. You're, you're good luck. I just prepared this. There's no such thing as a masterpiece that's not a masterpiece. There's no such thing as a ma Like this statue. If we can fix a dumb statue made by a dumb person in some dumb century, if God himself created a masterpiece, can God himself not fix it? Can God himself not correct it? Can God himself not put it back together? You see, when this thing, sometimes our lives feel a little bit broken. And when your lives feel a little bit broken, okay, if I, if I, if I broke something a little bit, Crazy glue, you put it back on. But some of us, our lives feel more like Humpty Dumpty who fell off the wall. And when it's Humpty Dumpty who fell off the wall, all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So sometimes it's not that we can't put ourselves back together, but we need someone bigger to put it back together. Someone smarter. What I'm saying is the cleaning people in the museum could not have put the Adam thing back together. It needed a certain level of expertise. Where will we find that expertise? Welcome to church. You are in the right place. Because here in church is where Jesus is. And where Jesus is, is where there's fixing. Look at this verse right here from Matthew chapter 9, verse, not, verse 12 and 13. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In fact, actually, in the original manuscript, the word to repentance doesn't appear. Okay, it was kind of put on, tacked on later on to clarify. But the word to repentance, take it even like you can take it for us today. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Translate that. I didn't come for the, for the masterpieces in the museums that look great. I came for the one that's broken on the floor. It says I can't be put back together again. I came for the broken. I came for the sick. Who did Jesus spend all his time with on this earth? Jesus spent all his time with the people who are broken, the people who are sick, the people who are demon-possessed. Jesus spent so much time with sinful people that he was characterized. The Pharisees said about him, your description is, you are a friend of sinners. You are friend of sinners. Because Jesus spent all his time with people who were broken and needed to be restored and needed to know they are a masterpiece despite what they look like. That their appearance was not the same as their identity. That their appearance was not the same as their identity. Their identity is masterpiece. Their appearance may be distorted, but the appearance is not the same as the identity. I put mud on the Mona Lisa, doesn't change her identity. It changes her appearance, but it does not change her identity. And your identity is you are a masterpiece. And Jesus came into this world. Like if you want to summarize the ministry of Christ on this earth in one word, I would say restoration. Jesus came as a restoration project because there's humanity down there. Humanity, history lesson. Created as a masterpiece. Everything is very good. No problem. Perfect. Everything is fantastic. Humanity fell. When Adam and Eve fell and mankind fell, everything got distorted. The image, the picture, the Mona Lisa, 
smudge over here and smudge over there. And all the good features that God put inside of us got smudged. And God put inside of us, like for example, it is not good for man to be alone. God put inside man a desire to have a companion and intimacy and oneness. That got corrupted and that became lust. What God made good got corrupted and smudged and became lust. Love turned to lust. Sharing and taking care of the earth became greed and selfishness. Everything in God's picture got corrupted. All the good features got corrupted. So Jesus' entire ministry was to heal, to fix, to restore. So my picture doesn't look right. Jesus came to restore the distorted image that had been caused by sin. I'll show this to you from another way. Psalm 51, famous psalm that King David said. Listen to the imagery that David puts in here about washing and cleansing. He says, wash. Why I say this? Because washing, sorry, follow me here, then we'll go to the verse. Follow me here. Washing implies what? That the identity of the object is clean. That the appearance is dirty, but the identity is clean. Like, sorry, if I got a piece of poop, I don't say wash the poop. You don't clean poop because poop is dirty. You don't say preserve it, wash it. Because its identity is dirty. You wash something that is clean, that has been defiled with dirt. So when, when, when there's imagery of wash me and cleanse me, means that the identity is clean. That it is something that is whole, that has been distorted. King David says, wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. And the best, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Your identity, which is often betrayed by your appearance, your identity is your masterpiece, and that's how you were created. And yes, you have made some mistakes, and you have smudged that identity, but there is no such thing as a masterpiece that has lost its masterpiece status. It is masterpiece forever. You know, in the, in the, in the verse I showed you earlier where Jesus said, I came for the sinners, not for the righteous. That's Matthew chapter 9. If you read, that was in my quiet time reading just a couple days ago. If you read Matthew chapter 9, the context of that. It was said in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12 and 13. Matthew 9 is a very long chapter. What else happened in Matthew chapter 9 before and after Jesus said this? This one statement right here. Okay, I listed it out for you, all the things Jesus did. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus started by healing a paralyzed man. He opened the eyes of a blind man. He had the, a person who was deaf, he healed that person. A person who was demon-possessed, he kicked out the demon. All he was doing is restoring, restoring. The blind restored their sight. The deaf restored their hearing. The demon-possessed restored their spirit. He didn't stop there. That was all the same chapter where he took Levi, who was away from God, had no purpose, had no, had no identity in Christ. And he came and gave him internal purpose, restored his image of himself. Woman who was bleeding for 12 years restored her health. And then he did a little something to cap it all off called raising the dead. Okay, a girl who had died, and he raised her up from the dead. His entire ministry, the name Jesus actually means God saves. Or said another way, God heals. He's the healing of God. Jesus' mission was to come to an earth that was broken, heal it, and restore it back to its rightful place. Now, how he did that, again, I want to get a little bit practical right here. How did he do that, and how does he do that for us? Does he restore our brokenness? Again, think back to the New Testament. When you read any story of Jesus healing, when you read any story of Jesus healing, there's two, for the most part, two kind of criteria or two kind of characteristics that Jesus' healing always had these two. You could find other things, but these two were always there. When Jesus healed... 
How often did he come to a crowd, stand in front of everyone, and just do a abracadabra healing to everyone who was in the crowd? How many times did we read about that? Zero. What did Jesus do when he went to the crowd? He called one by one. You? And he went and healed that person. My daughter is sick. Okay, let me go touch your daughter. And many times he would touch them, put his hand on them. My son is dead. Touch the coffin. Jesus touched a lot. And if he didn't touch, he would speak very personal to you. Okay, it was always, my point is, a one-on-one -on -one interaction. It was never done in quantity in masses. There was the two criteria was that people would come to Jesus in a personal interaction and the way in which they came. If you had to define the way they came, as one word. Don't say faith, because faith is true, but it's not the word that I'm looking for. It's part of it. I would say, they came to Jesus, and they came confessing their sins. Those were always the two criteria. They came to him, and they came to him confessing their sins. They came not just saying, I'm broken, fix me. Saying, I repent, because I know I caused my brokenness. Heal me, Lord. Come to Jesus, come confessing your sins. That sounds a lot like something I know very well. Does that sound like something you know? Something that is offered to us? How could we tangibly, like we, wanna, we don't want to just take the words of Scripture and make them like spiritual and just like something fluffy. Let's take them in real. When Jesus was on this earth, he walked around in the flesh. His body, he walked around in the flesh. He walked around. And people came to him, confessing their sins, and he would touch them, and he would heal them. How can I have that same interaction with Jesus? With, or I could come to his body, receive a touch, while I'm confessing my sins. That sounds a lot like what? I can switch out that picture and put this picture in there instead. It sounds a lot like what we know in the Orthodox Church as the mystery of confession, doesn't it? This is why, okay, for those who haven't been here this whole series, I've been talking about this thing called mysteries. Mystery is another word for sacraments, but I like the word mysteries because I think the word mystery conveys the true meaning. A mystery means something you get, but something that you don't see that you're getting. It means that there's more than meets the eye. And what I was saying a couple weeks ago is that you may say, you know what, I'm not into this mystery thing and it's mystical and I, I just give me something I can prove and something that I can see. And I say, if you say that, that's fine. I respect your, 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 willing to, your, your decision to say that. But I'm telling you, you're missing out on life. Because the best things in life are things that we don't understand. And if you limit your life, even outside of church, if you limit your life to only the things that you understand, you're going to live a pathetic life. I go home today, I sit in front of the TV, I push a button, and the channels change. I don't have any idea how that works. That's a mystery to me, but I, I take advantage of it. I stick my key in my car, I push the thing, and my car goes forward. That's fantastic. Just because I don't understand it doesn't mean I don't use it. Like, that's a very uh, limited way of thinking. If you're going to limit what you do in life to only what you can explain and understand, I trust that there's somebody who's smarter than me who programs these things to make the channel turn to the channel I want it to. And I trust that when Jesus gave us the church, the church, that he put things in there that we don't understand, but we can certainly take advantage of. And one of them is the sacraments of the mysteries. And this mystery of confession is when we come to the body of Christ Literally, the body of Christ. We say the church is the living body of Christ. It is the body of Christ. We come to the body of Christ. We come confessing our sins. And he puts his hand on us in personal interaction. And he sends, your sins are forgiven. You go in peace. <clears throat> this verse here from Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. 
see the imagery of coming to the body of Christ. Okay, in this personal interaction right here, Matthew 4, 23. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria. Watch this. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. They brought to him all who were sick, and he healed them. This is what the church is for. This is what the church and the mysteries, this is what the mystery of confession is for. This is what that guy in the street wanted yesterday. He said, I'm broken. I need help. There's something inside us as human beings that when we, 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 we feel broken, we need help. And thankfully, the church does not leave us, but gives us a chance. Now, again, confession, all the sacraments are mysteries. They're mysteries. We can't understand them. But we can understand a little bit about them. Okay, so I don't need to understand. I, I cannot explain how when I come to confession that I'm healed on the inside. I can't explain it. But I can understand a little bit of it. I can't explain it fully, but I can understand a little bit of it. How does confession, how does confession, how does coming to a priest, how does coming to the church, confessing my sins, heal me and restore what was broken inside? How does that process work? The mystery of confession heals me fixes me, restores me, because it connects me to the cross of Jesus. Confession doesn't save me. Jesus saves me. Confession doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. But confession connects us to the saving act of Christ on the cross. Did you catch that one? I'm not saying confession saves us. Only Jesus saves us. I'm saying confession connects us to the saving act of Christ on the cross. Because everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus did 2,000 years ago, we connect to it in a mystical way. It's a mystery. We don't, I can't explain it. Don't ask me to explain it. But we connect to it through the mysteries of the church. That Jesus did the Last Supper, we connect to the Last Supper. How? Through the mystery of the Eucharist. Jesus died and was buried in the tomb and then rose again. We connect to that. How? When we are baptized in the waters of baptism. We connect to the saving action of Christ through the mysteries that the church gives to us. What did Jesus do when he hung on a cross? The last, not the last, the second to last thing he said. Okay, the last thing he said, he said, into your hands I commend my spirit, which speaking to the Father. The last thing he said right before that. Y'all know what the last words that he said right before that? He said three words. It actually was one word, okay, in, in Aramaic, but it's three words for us. He said, it is finished. It is done. It is complete. It is finished. Not I am finished. That's what they thought. He actually just getting started. He said, it is finished. What's it? My mission. I came to restore the image of God inside you. Because you were made a masterpiece. You were made a masterpiece. And that image got distorted. And I came so that image could be clean again. Before Jesus came and hung on a cross, you had no choice. You had no choice. You were messed up. You had no choice. But he came and said, the path is now complete. No one has to, you may be down, but you do not need to stay down. 
You may be dirty, but you do not need to stay dirty. The path to salvation, to cleansing, to healing, to restoration, to fixing, call it whatever you want, is finished. Now I put it back in your hands. St. Peter said it this way. St. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins on his own body. Again, the connection with his body. On a tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. We're done the series. We're done the series. But before we wrap up here, it is time for us to stop trying to make ourselves white, whiter than snow. It is time for us to stop trying to make ourselves clean. It is time for us, as the statues that are broken, to stop trying to super glue ourselves back together because you simply cannot do it. What we need to do is come to the cross of Christ. And when we come to the cross of Christ, and we come to him, and we come confessing our sins and saying, I believe, and I repent, and I want you to heal me because I know that I'm a masterpiece. I know that's how you made me. He will wash us and cleanse us and make us better than that dumb statue in New York. I'm going to invite our music team to come back up here real quick because I like to, I want to close with, with a song that we're going to sing. And the song, I, 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 I kind of sprung this on them not too long ago. Okay, so I told them I really wanted this song to be sung right here because it's a very song that's very dear to my heart that I, I think kind of captures this message. And as we, as we, as we sing this song, okay, it's called At the Cross is the name of the song. And as we sing the song At the Cross, we want to picture ourselves really at the cross of Christ. And when we come to that cross and we see him hanging there, we see he hung to restore the masterpiece inside me. Okay? Let's stand up together. Okay? Kind of close our eyes for a second. Let's close our eyes for a second and just picture ourselves standing really in front of the cross of Christ who died and gave himself to restore the image, the masterpiece which he created inside each one of us.
of salvation that you have given to us and for the love that you have showered us with that we truly don't deserve. Lord, if there's anyone in this world who doesn't deserve a second chance or like a hundredth chance, it's us, Lord. But we thank you that you have adopted us, brought us into your family, sanctified us, given us a chance to, to, to be one with you and that you've made a way for us to get back to that image whenever we fall. I pray, Lord, that you would not allow anyone to, to be tempted by the the tricks deceived by the devil when he tells us that we're junk and we're no good and we're worthless. Even if the whole world tells us that, Lord, we believe that we are masterpieces in your eyes. Why would you give your only begotten son unless we were, had great value in your eyes? We thank you, Lord, and we pray that, that through this series that we would really live a new life, a powerful life, a rich life, a glorious life, the way you've intended us for, to live that we would live out our identity, knowing that, that knowing who we are is just the beginning of living out who we are. And we pray that we would leave with like empowered feeling that we are something great in your eyes. We ask these things in the name of your only begotten Son, with the prayers of all your saints. Lord, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.